Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Try not to take too long to share a thought around Resurrection Sunday this morning. And the thought is simply this. I want to talk about empty promises. The title of my message this morning is Empty Promises. Turn to the person next to you and say, Empty Promises. Have you ever had an empty promise? Have you ever been on the end of an empty promise? Someone promising you the world, promising you something and you never got anything in return for your promise. Anyone ever experienced an empty promise? It doesn't feel good. I I felt that on numerous occasions in my life, being promised the world and getting very little in return. I'm sure we're all in good company when we say that. This thought reminds me of a story of a young man by the name of Bill who had a wealthy father. And it was tradition in their family that the father would buy his children a brand new car when they graduated from high school, which is a really cool thing to do. And in the lead up to the graduation, Bill and his father would go out and looking at all the car yards and shopping for the exact car that he wanted. And uh, he, he felt that he picked the right car and he, he let his dad know in no uncertain terms that this is the car that I want you to buy for me. And on the graduation day, his father handed Bill a gift. Bill was super excited to receive this gift, kind of knowing what this gift already was. He couldn't open it quick enough. He ripped open the wrapper expecting to see a box with some car keys in it. But to his disgust and his dismay, he opened it to find nothing more than a Bible. Talk about an empty promise. Bill was so mad with his dad He grabbed the Bible, threw it to the ground, ran out of the house and refused to ever speak to his dad again. And the crazy thing is this went on week after week, month after month and the months turned into years. And Bill's father tried on numerous occasions to talk to his son to plead with his son, to explain to his son, to have some conversation with his son. But on every advancement of the father, Bill said no. As the years rolled on, Bill got ill and died. Sorry, the father got ill and died. Bill was informed by the family that the father had passed away. And even with the news that his father passed away, Bill still showed no remorse, no sadness. The only emotion that came to the fore was still a bitterness, a resentment and an anger toward his father for not buying him the car that he'd been promised. His family said, please come and and search through the father's 
stuff and we're going to divide up the inheritance. And so reluctantly, he came to the home and he was going through some of the father's things and, and shock of all shocks, Bill came across the Bible that his father gave him all those years ago. The one that he threw down. And Bill seeing that Bible again, it stirred up incredible emotion, resentment, bitterness and anger towards his father at just the sight of this Bible. But for whatever reason, Bill opened the Bible and started thumbing through a few pages and to his shock and to his amazement, lodged in one of the pages In the Bible was a check for the very same amount of the car that he wanted to buy all those years ago. You see, Bill's father never lied. Bill's father didn't promise something that was empty. Bill's father placed the check in the Bible to make a significant point that this car that we're about to buy is not the most important thing in your life. He wanted his son to know that the most important thing in his life is not the car, but it's the Word of God. And young Bill had been mad all of these years for nothing. It never occurred to Bill to ask his father, why did you give me a Bible? It never occurred to Bill to stop and ask, hey, what happened to the car that we were searching for or looking for? He just got mad, stormed out, ignored his father for the rest of his life. And I don't know about you, but I find that a very tragic story. But the question that I think of when I think about this story is how many of us do the same thing with God, our Heavenly Father? Discarding God's promises that are made because of anger, resentment, bitterness, confusion, silence. You see, God's given us many promises in His Word. And while I'll be the first to admit, some, some are difficult to see at times and, and, and some are difficult to grasp at times and, and other times they're difficult to believe. And, and I've learned this, that's because God's doing more behind our back than He's doing in front of our face. But He's always at work and He's always there. And while His promises are not always easy to see or always easy to grasp, they are always true and they are never empty. With the exception of one promise. One promise Jesus made was very empty in the best possible way. If you have your Bible on a device, an iPad or an iPhone or an iMac computer, or you can follow on the screen, how's that? This Apple Mac screen. But, but in Luke, chapter 24, Luke was a doctor. 
He, he was one of the scribes that wrote down some of the things that eyewitnesses had seen and, 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 and been involved in firsthand. And he, he was writing those things down. And in Luke chapter 24, this, this is what he penned. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said, why, why, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. I mean, you've got to picture this. I think the best way to read the Bible is to try as best you can to put yourself in, in the text. And there's these women who are just in mourning mode. Only three days earlier, their beloved Jesus had been brutally crucified on a cross. They saw His dead body taken off that cross. They saw that body wrapped and put into a tomb. And they went with their spices prepared just just to prepare the body. They were not believing they were not expecting to see what they saw. Jesus prophesied about rising again from the dead. They didn't believe it. They were not going to see if He'd risen from the dead. They were going to prepare the dead body. And they've got their, 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 their uh, spices. <laughs> Thanks, Ash, the great theologian that you are. And they get to the, they get to the tomb and I imagine they think, oh, goodness me, how are we going to get in the tomb? It takes a number of men to roll the stone away. Oh, we didn't think about that. Maybe we should have brought some of the guys. Hey, maybe some guys are useful after all. Who knew? Yeah. And so they just... And they think, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll worry about that when we get there. But to their surprise, the stone had been rolled away. They dropped the spices Wow, it's amazing. Maybe in that moment, I thought, wow, God is real. He's rolled away the tomb so we can see the dead body of Jesus. Wow, He does perform miracles. At best, that would have been the, the most they could have believed for. And, and they kind of, I mean, you've got a picture. You don't just walk into a, I mean, a tomb. It's like, ooh. I don't know, you. Grave sites are eerie, don't you think? let alone in the morning when it's still dark. I'm going to give you a heebie-jeebie. Sort of. And I imagine the, the girls are... Like, you go in, you go in. Hey, you go in, you go in. You go in. And then they're more amazed. Because not only has a tomb been, tombstone been rolled away, but they're looking for the body of Jesus and where the body of Jesus lay, it's not there. And the Bible says that while they were pondering, what on earth 
is going on here? I mean, they've got an empty tomb. And they've got empty grave clothes. And what on earth is going on? As if the morning can't get any stranger. Two angelic figures, just like bright, appear. And it says they were terrified. I mean, they've already got the heebie-jeebies. And then two angelic beings that are brighter than bright appear. Ah. It's kind of like me with these lights in my face right now. It's like... So why are you looking for the uh, living among the dead? Imagine the, the women going, I, don't know, I, thought, I thought we were looking for the dead. <laughs> Mary, were you looking for the I wasn't looking for the living. Were you looking for the living? I'm not looking for the living. We're looking for the dead. And, and then these angelic being said, he's not here. Jesus is not here. He's risen. Tombs are for dead people. Jesus is not here because He's not dead. He's not here. He's alive. He's risen. And this teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is pivotal to our faith. And it's pivotal to all of humanity. See, Christianity stands or falls on the issue of the resurrection. And the question that remains for all of us is this, is the resurrection story true or false? I think by watching me today, you know I like to tell a good story and I think I do an okay job of that. But is it just a story? Or is it in fact true? Is it true or is it false? Is the resurrection story of Jesus Christ true or false? This I know, it cannot be true and false. It has to be either true or false. It can't be both. It cannot be both. It has to be either true or false. And if it is false, it needs to be thrown out. We're all wasting our time here this morning and we should be up the river skiing. Which is kind of where I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to be doing that right now. Or, or down the beach. Anywhere but here if it's not true. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, it says, If Christ has not been raised from, the fa- uh, from, raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. We're wasting our time. So if it's false, let's throw it away. But oh, if it's true, it's the most important event in human history. And it affects every life. It affects believers and unbelievers. It affects every nationality, every gender, every age group. If the resurrection story of Jesus Christ is true, it affects each and every one of us. And that's why I'm so glad that you're here this morning because this message is for you as it's for me, as it's for you, as it's for you, as it's for you. It's for all of us. 
if it's true, the question is, which is more probable? Is it more probable that it's false or is it more probable that it's true? And to find out whether it's true or not, we need to look at the evidence for or against the resurrection. And when you're looking for evidence for the resurrection, the starting place has to be the empty tomb. And I say empty tomb because there's one thing that everyone agrees on that was there was that it was empty. Religious leaders, governments, Roman soldiers, disciples alike, there was no dispute that the fact that the tomb was indeed empty. That was not up for debate. The question is, how did it get empty? And you know when you don't understand something, you, you start grasping at straws as to what it could be. And there are a number of theories that came in and around that time because they just didn't know how the tomb got empty. And so a few theories were formulated. And I wanna look at some of those theories this morning real quickly and see the validity of them or not. And the first theory is this, theory number one, that the disciples took the body. You can read about that in Matthew 27. There was this discussion, ah, maybe the disciples took the body. The question is why? What would it prove if the disciples took the body to trick everyone into thinking that He'd risen from the dead? Because the Bible goes on to tell us that these disciples that supposedly took the body were beaten for their faith. They were harshly treated for their faith. And those 12 early apostles all were martyred for their faith. That's a big call for a lie that they knew that they created. The other discrepancy there is that the disciples themselves didn't believe in the resurrection. Like I've already mentioned, when the women went there, they didn't go to see if He'd risen. They went there with their spices. Remember? And when they saw and heard what they saw and heard, they ran back to the disciples and said, oh my gosh, the tomb's empty. Peter and John, the men, stand up and they run. They don't believe it. They are women. <laughs> Not that that happens here. And they go, they're like, wow, it's empty. Why would the disciples take the body when they didn't even believe in the resurrection themselves? And the other thing is, even if they did take the body, how did they get the body? The tomb was sealed with a Roman seal. It was armed with guards outside. And they were totally afraid. They were actually locked in an upper room, fearing for their own lives. It's not very plausible that the disciples themselves stole the body. But it's a theory. The second theory goes like this that they went to the wrong tomb. Smart people come up with these ideas. <laughs> now I get, that, I get that men could go to the wrong tomb. <laughs> I get that. But the Bible specifically states it was the women who went first. Thank God for women.
You know those road trips? <laughs> Honey, go left. No, 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 I know a better way. I just, I just. No, no, no. But, but it was, it was, it was the, the ladies. And it was highly unlikely that they went to the wrong tomb because it was a private tomb. It wasn't in a public place. A rich man by the name of Joseph actually dedicated his tomb for the use of the body of Jesus. It wasn't just some random graveyard. It was a private tomb. And again, if this theory was true, then why not just go to the right one and present the body? Just saying. Are you following this? I, I know I'm talking to an educated bunch of people. <laughs> Theory number three is this, that the Jews and the Romans stole the body. And the thinking behind this one is they stole the body in order to stop the disciples stealing the body. Which also is highly unlikely because they put a guard around the tomb in order to stop the disciples stealing the body. That's, that's what the soldiers were there for, to stop the disciples coming. So they didn't need to take the body out of the tomb. And if it's true, why not just produce the body and stop the resurrection lie? Theory number four is that the guards fell asleep. The trouble is with that, when you fall asleep and you're on duty, it's severe punishment, if not punishment by death. And that's why the Roman soldiers didn't go to the Roman superiors. They went to the chief priests because they knew that their life was under threat. And the chief priest offered the money, a guard's money, in order to say that they fell asleep with the offer of protection of their lives. Theory number five is that Jesus wasn't actually dead. I, this one is just... Phew. Jesus didn't actually die. It's called the swoon theory. Maybe some of you have heard about it. But I want you to just picture this for a moment. This Jesus, who was not dead, he, he was the one that was beaten to within an inch of his death, uh, inch of his life. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. He was forced to carry a cross weighing about 150 pounds. He was so weak, he stumbled and fell and they had to ask someone else to help him carry his cross. He was on the cross. They pierced his wrists. They pierced his feet. And he hung there. They put a spear in his side and the Bible says that water and blood flowed, which speaks of cardiac arrest. And without being a doctor, people knew that this man is well and truly dead because water and blood flowed. They took him off the cross. They began to prepare his body for burial. And it wasn't just laying a sheet over him. They prepared it like, like you would a mummy, wrapping in linen cloths and, and putting like a, make a gluey paste of myrrh and other ingredients. And, and it would set and become hard, like a cocoon. And then they'd place this body of Jesus in a tomb where that cocoon-like cloth would get harder and harder. 
And because of the bodily fluids that were oozing from the body of Jesus, that cloth would have just messed with his flesh and become one with him. And the swing theory says that Jesus somehow survived all of that. In a mummified state, managed to unwrap himself. Let alone be able to breathe through all of that cloth. But let's just say, even if that is true, let's just say he he just kind of passed out, came to and, and got out of this mummified state that he was in. He then has the problem of a stone that takes numerous men to move. Somehow in a weakened state, one man's got to move this big stone. And then let's just say he does. Once he's moved it, he's got to then fend off the soldiers. And then this weakened, battened and bruised state declare he's alive. The chances of that being true are, are very unlikely. The sixth theory is this, that the disciples were hallucinating. The disciples saw Jesus and they saw Jesus because they were so desperate to see Jesus. You know, when you're so desperate for something, you begin to see it. You see those movies where someone's in the desert and they're so thirsty and they're so delirious, they start seeing oases and and water. And they're saying that they're in such a hallucinated state, so desiring to see their risen Lord that they just hallucinated this image of Jesus. The trouble is with that, Jesus didn't just appear on a one-off occasion. He appeared on numerous occasions over a six-week period. He appeared to the disciples who themselves were not believers. And He appeared to those that were not believers. He appeared to ones and twos and He appeared to the crowds. On one occasion, He appeared to 550 people all at one time, believers and unbelievers. And they all saw and they all heard what He had to say. And again, if it was just a hallucination, why not just present the body? You see, you need to understand this story of the resurrection was circulated in the same city where Jesus died. It wasn't that they went to some obscure place. It was in the city that He died. And it it didn't have time to become legend. They declared the resurrection story within a very short period of time of His death. This wasn't something that was fabricated hundreds of years later. This was spoken of three days after His death. It was recorded while believers were still alive. And we have the evidence in Scripture today. You see, the evidence is in favour of the resurrection. Because of the strong evidence for the empty tomb, most recent scholars do not deny it. John Copley said this, He recognised as one of the greatest legal minds in human history, he was a Solicitor General of the British Government, Attorney General of Great Britain, three times a High Councillor of England and elected High Steward of the University of Cambridge, said this, I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as this for the resurrection has never been broken down yet. Lord Caldecott says this, and he was a Chief Justice of England. He said, he observed that an overwhelming case for the resurrection could be made merely as a matter of strict evidence. 
and that his resurrection has led me, as often as I have tried to examine the evidence, to believe it is in fact beyond dispute. D. H. Van Dahl says this, It is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on the historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. And Jacob Kramer, a specialist in the study of the resurrection, and he's a New Testament critic, said this, by far most exegetes, that's by people that study Bible, hold firmly to the reliability of the Bible statement about the empty tomb. And he lists 28 other scholars that back up this fantastic claim. There's so much evidence in favour of the resurrection. If you want a good read, I would encourage you to get the book called The Case for Christ. And you can study this at a whole nother level. These are smart men. The author of The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, was an atheist, a non-believer. And he set out to disprove the resurrection. And all the evidence, he went far and wide. And all the evidence led him to believe that the resurrection is true. And he became a Christian as a result of him trying to disprove the resurrection story. There is great favour for the resurrection. But, but what does that mean for us? What does the resurrection actually mean for us? Three things very quickly and we're done. We're going to get some people baptised. How does that sound? The, the empty tomb means this. Number one, that Jesus is who He claimed to be. It means He's not a liar. Jesus made some very bold claims. He says, I am the Lord. I am the resurrection. No one comes to the Father but through me. These are not just kind of good statements. People think Jesus was a good teacher. Good teachers don't lie. This is either true or not. And if it's not true, then He's not a good teacher. He's not a good man because He's lied and deceived people. Jesus is either Lord, He's liar, or He's a lunatic. But He can't be all three. But His character, His nature, His death, burial, resurrection, what He prophesied about all came to pass, thus proving He is who He says He is. Secondly, it means that Jesus has the power that He claimed He had. You see, Jesus claimed to be God and the resurrection proved that He was God, which means He had the power that God has and God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent, which means He has all power. And Jesus proved that when He died on a cross, but rose again. And no religious leader, no government or Roman soldier was able to stop Him and stop the power that He had. They tried to trap Him. They even lied about Him. They falsely accused Him and they beat Him badly. They mocked Him and they crucified Him. They killed Him and then they buried Him. They placed a large stone over the entrance of the tomb. They sealed it and then they guarded it. But church, listen to me. But then came the morning that sealed the promise. The buried body began to breathe. Cagoon, cagoon. And out of the silence, the roaring lion declared that the grave has no hold on me. Come on, let's give Jesus 
praise this morning. You see, church, Easter is not the death of Jesus. Easter is the death of death. Jesus conquered death and hell once and for all. Please take your seats. That was just a praise break. You can't preach this kind of message and just sit there the whole way through it. But I'm almost done. See, this is the message of Easter, that we don't have to fear death anymore. Jesus faced death for us. And by His victory, we've been saved from our sin. Jesus has taken the sting out of death. I remember hearing a story of a young lad who was in a car with his dad and he was allergic to bees. So much so that if a bee would sting him, it would threaten his life. One day they're in the car, window was down, bee flies in the car, the kid is petrified. But dad was there. Dad leans over, grabs the bee, allows the bee to sting him in his hand and then lets the bee go. The kid still panics because the bee is still alive and he's still in the car. And there's his son. You don't need to be afraid of that bee anymore. The sting has been removed from him. You do not have to fear death. Death for the believer in Christ Jesus is nothing more than a homecoming. We leave this life for eternal life. Heaven is our home. In 10,000 years from now, we're going to be glad that we made a decision to follow the one who took the sting out of death. This is the Easter message. And thirdly, it proves that Jesus does what He says He'll do. See, the cross was no surprise to Jesus. It was a surprise to the disciples, but not to the, uh, Jesus. It was all part of His plan. He spoke about it often. And it happened just as He said it would. He said, they will kill me. And I will rise again on the third day. And on the third, He rose again and said, I'm back. I'm back. Just like I said, I would be which means that Jesus' Word can be trusted. If what Jesus said in the past came to pass, what He said about our future can also be trusted. The Bible says for all of those who come to Him, all of those that confess their sin, all of those that give their life over to Him would not die, but would receive everlasting life. Why do I believe that? Because Jesus can be trusted. Everything that He said He would do, He did in full. I have no trouble believing that Jesus can take care of my future because of what He did in the past. Going back to our original story about Bill and his father, I want to say this, don't be like Bill. And miss out on the promise because it looks empty. I know God is hard to explain. I know the story of the resurrection is difficult to conceive. But let's not be like Bill and declare that God's promises are empty because we don't fully see it. Don't be like Bill and get angry and ignore God like Bill did with his father. 
in, in this church, we encourage your questions. You may be here for the first time under duress, hoping at best you might get a free hot cross bun. I don't know. <laughs> and maybe you've said, I'll watch you get baptized, but then I'm out of here. And that's cool. It's your prerogative. But I'm here to tell you that you're important to God, that you matter to Him. And He loves you and you're not here by accident this morning. And don't be like Bill and, and just get angry at God and ignore. Hang around and ask some questions. We've got a team of people in our welcome lounge are here to help stand. We'd love to just spend some time with you after this service if you so desire. Answer any questions you may have. And let's not be like Bill and leave it too late. Bill had the revelation about his father when it was too late for him to make amends. I know this. Five years from now, some of us who are a little bit older or deathly sick may not be with us. In 10 years' time, that number will grow. In 20 years' time, that number will be bigger. In 50 years' time, that number will be quite significant. And in 100 years from now, every one of us will not be here. And the decision that we make here on planet Earth will affect our future. Every person is going to be asked two questions. The first one is this. When we stand before God, and everyone will stand before God, he's going to ask the first question, what did you do with my son? And how we answer that determines where we spend eternity. If we say, I, I, I heard the message of Jesus in church one day, and it so caught my attention and imagination. I, I, I was so made aware of my sin and my need for a saviour. I gave my life to Jesus and I've been serving him all the days of my life. I said, well done, good faithful servant. Come with me and spend all time and eternity with him. And those who said, yeah, I heard the story. It wasn't for me. So that's fine. And God will send you where you've chose to be. And that's life without God. See, God doesn't send people to hell. He just gives you your wish. I'm going to send you to a place where the absence of God People say, what's, what's, what's heaven and hell like? I, I don't know. But this is how I can best explain it. Heaven is better than your best day on earth. Think about your best day right now. Heaven's better. Think about your worst day for a moment. Hell's worse. First question we're going to have to answer is, what did you do with Jesus? And that determines where we spend eternity. The second question is, what did you do with the gifts that I gave you? And that determines how we spend eternity. It's a great thought. And Jesus did everything he could to make a life with him possible. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.